Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York City, a special good morning for Brian Levitt, Oppenheimer Funds' senior investment strategist. How are you doing, Brian? I'm good. Good morning. Is this a 2011-2016 scenario? I've heard so many people debating that in the market over the last couple of days. I think it, it does have some similarities to 2016. If we remember the beginning of 2016, the idea was that the U.S. was decoupling from the rest of the world. The Federal Reserve was going to proceed with a number of interest rate hikes. That strengthened the dollar. That sucked money out of the emerging economies. And ultimately what happened, Jonathan, was the Federal Reserve essentially said, okay, just kidding. Right? They backed off. Yeah. The dollar stabilized. Commodity prices stabilized. Now, what's different then than now was you also had Chinese stimulus about to come on board in a significant way. I don't think we're going to see the um, bazooka Chinese stimulus, but you'll see a, a drip strategy, and, and that should stabilize growth globally as the U.S. slows. This, for me, is the big point. So we had a growth scare in early 2016. It was very much made in China. Then the European Central Bank threw the kitchen sink at it. The Federal Reserve backed away, and the Chinese pumped a load of credit into right. the system. Right. Does the ECB and the Federal Reserve have the same game plan? Do they have the capacity to do the same thing again? Most people are going to say no. Well, the Fed certainly, well, the European Central Bank definitely does. The Federal Reserve does. Um, you know, even though it's a tight labor market, if you look at the Phillips curve, it's still basically as flat as the table that we're sitting at. So you don't see the wage inflation. Sure, wages are up some, but in a healthy way. Core personal consumption expenditure just got to 2%. It's, there's nothing worrisome about the inflation backdrop. So, so long as the dollar remains persistently strong and the yield curve um, relatively relatively flattish, the Federal Reserve can certainly back off, and I suspect they will. Let's talk about what's happening right now that will spark the interest of the Federal Reserve to the degree that they back away. What is happening in the market right now that's going to be of the most concern to them? I think what the biggest concern to them is what's going on in the housing sector. And so, you know, what we're finding out, in case people were wondering, is the U.S. still an interest rate sensitive economy? We are still an interest rate sensitive economy. So when rates go up to, you know, 320, the economy slows. That was always the risk of late cycle stimulus. This idea that the United States is decoupling from the rest of the world, there was this belief, I never believed it, but the U.S. was going to go to a new higher sustained level of growth. It's not true. What it's done is it brought rates higher. That's slowing the economy. And the U.S. is moving back towards trend. And, and the Fed can back off in that environment. Yeah, Brian Levitt, John Farrow and I really try, and we fail. I fail more than John. John's perfect. But we fail <laughs> at avoiding the hysteria hysteria of the moment. I'm not seeing the hysteria that's with catharsis or true correction or true bear market, but I'm thunderstruck by some of the headlines saying 2018 was a horrific equity year. If you have double digit returns X years in a row, you got to go single digit at some point, right? Right. And and right now what you're seeing is what NASDAQ up a percent, S&P 500 up 3%. So it's not a disastrous year. It's a tough October and a tough November. You know, through all the hysteria, investors really need to think about what their goals are and what their time horizons are. We can look back over very long periods of times and show that over any 10-year period, stocks are positive 94% of the time. Over any one-year period, it's 75% of the time. So 
you know, investors are always trying to get the next trade, get the next data point right. Yeah, we need to pay attention to the cycle. Yeah, we need to pay attention to policy. But for long-term investors, they need to see through this and look at these moves as buying opportunities. Because to me, and John, I think this is really important, corrections are normal. At least that's what the textbooks say. And I would say, Brian, we've moved on from that. Well, we've had corrections a, are a media event. <laughs> I mean, we've had a greater than five percent correction in every year, but two in the last forty it is, years. Come on, guys, though, it is very, very rare. And, and for one, the S and P five hundred, I believe, is now down on the year. It is very, very rare to have a market cross asset which has delivered negative returns across pretty much every single <clears throat> asset class within the equity market to have a couple of corrections within a single year, yeah. and on top of that, have a GDP print. With a three-handle, with a four-handle, without right. a real deceleration in U.S. growth, we've had all those things. Right. Credit's disappointed. Sovereigns have had right. negative yeah. returns. Yeah. Equities have had negative yeah. returns. There's something going on here that Pharaoh's isn't normal. fired up today. Don't you think so? <laughs> he's, 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 like, he's like filming like four properties today. He's like, Are you going to do equities on the real yield? No, we, we recorded real yield yesterday for the oh, show. Oh, did you? For the show to play out through the weekend. And oh, through the holiday. Okay. Well, I think what you're describing, Jonathan, is an environment where policy uncertainty is creating a lot of market volatility. And that's, that's what tends to happen. I mean, it's been a prolonged period for companies that's been about this increase in profit margins. And when we start to talk about tariffs and we start to get tighter on trade policy, you have to be concerned about where growth goes and what that means for profit margins. Now, you hear from those who are inside the Trump administration administration or have contacts within the Trump administration who say Trump wants a deal, Kudlow wants a deal, we shall see. Um, I suspect that that Trump doesn't want a, a very weak um, equity market in the year leading up to the, okay. the 2020 election. How, so how does see. Oppenheimer Funds express Asia investment? I mean, short of, you know, buying Shanghai, what, how do you pronounce it? Shenzhen. <laughs> Shenzhen. I think it's what you, know. you wanted to say, but you were about to say something a whole lot worse. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Oh, look, an email from Al from New Jersey. Um, no, but seriously, Brian, the, the, how do you express Asia investment in a rational and intelligent way right now? I think Al's my neighbor, actually, in New Jersey. Really? Yeah, I think he is. Oh, um, interesting. You know, we're excited about, um, over the long term, the Chinese consumer. It mm -hmm. is, um, you know, we talk about 70, 80 millennials in the United States. There's 415 millennials, 415 million millennials in China. The labor force is over 750 million people. And the consumption patterns are likely to continue to be strong. So, you know, I think that investors need to be selective within um, investing in Asia. It needs to be a bottom-up process. But that consumer growth story, that growing middle class, does not change. the The expectation is 160 million new people will be added to the middle class in yeah. Asia <clears throat> yeah. over the next 15 years. <laughs> Let me bring in uh, someone. You know, I was so happy to see her appointment after Catherine Mann at OECD. With Merrill Lynch years ago, it was must read, John, on the synthesis of politics and economics in France. And you only did that with Laurence Boone. Yeah. It was just, I told Anil Gurria when I saw him that this was just an inspired selection uh, to take over this really important report. What's great about it is there's not a lot of chit chat. OECD gets right to the point 
when they talk about the slowdown they see. There's a headline, so let's talk about the slowdown they see. Lawrence Boone joining us now, OECD Chief Economist. Good morning to you and great to have you with us on the programme. Good morning to you too and thanks for the fantastic introduction. Tom is like that. He, he's very kind, especially ahead of Thanksgiving. Which only because of Thanksgiving. Uh, Laurence, Thanksgiving is an American holiday, which is the beginning of our separation from the mother country. That's where the French just, bailed that's, us that's, out. That's just you letting me know that, isn't it? Yes, and yeah. the French bailed us out like 15 times uh, along the way. So let's talk about it, Lawrence. What is happening, not with that, but with glo- the global economy. Are we seeing a growth scare? Because some people in the market think we are. What do you see right now? Well, we are seeing growth effectively slowing down, and it's slowing down primarily because trade is being hurt by all the tensions that are going on. If you if you look at it, just let me give you one number. Last year, you know, container port traffic, which is about 80% of the global trade, was growing at 6%. Now it's down to 2%. And to give you an image, if we were still growing as fast as last year, we would have 25 million more container navigating on the seas. That's a big, big number, Lawrence. So what does it tell us that we've seen a deceleration from last year, a lost momentum or entering a cyclical downturn? we are seeing a significant deterioration for last year. The message we have is, you know, things are slowing down, growth has peaked, and it's always difficult to challenge, uh, to navigate, to to engineer, sorry, a soft landing. But when you have such tension, it's even more difficult. So what we're saying is, you know, we need to fix this trade issue. And then looking ahead, we need to be ready to address a sharper slowdown if, if it was to happen. Right. Laurence, one of the differences in your economics is your econometrics out of Reading. Your dynamics, your mathematical dynamics have always been uh, world class. Within that is how does currency fit into this? Because the release valve for this can be that we're in a hugely floating fixed uh, floating currency environment and that can help us with these pressures. Can the dollar and the euro and the yen, can their dynamics come to the rescue of a global slowdown? Well, I'm not sure actually they can because as you know, monetary policy in the US is normalizing ahead of other advanced economies. Europe will lag behind and appropriately so. And we are seeing outflows from emerging economies going back toward the U.S. as the U.S. is raising rates. So I think it will not be a rebalancing uh, engine. So I get into work a little bit later than Tom Keane, and Tom doesn't like that. But when I came down the escalator this morning, I saw Laurence on with you, Tom, and there was a headline, and it said the OECD says something along the lines of get ready for some fiscal stimulus to respond to a growth slowdown. And Lawrence, I thought that was really interesting because right now the Italians are in a battle with the European Commission to introduce some fiscal stimulus. Where does the OECD stand on that battle as it currently plays out? Well, the OECD doesn't do one-size-fits-all policies, and um, and there are two things in what you're saying. The first one is this fiscal stimulus that we are calling for is if things were to worsen more than what we have in our central scenario. You know, in 2009, central banks gathered together to cut rate together by 0.5 percentage point at the same time. And this, 
I think, was the shock that actually started afterwards a lot of policies and the recovery. Now, they don't have the luxury of doing as big things as what they've done. They've rescued us once, but next time it has to be government. And what we're saying here is it would be incredibly powerful if, in the case of a slowdown, governments were sitting together and announcing that they're going to boost their fiscal, they're going to boost fiscal spending by 0.5% of GDP because that would benefit all even more than if they had done it individually and it would relieve central banks from the burden of always rescuing us. Within this slowdown, there's this big part of each economy, consumption. Within OECD work, is China becoming a more consumer nation? China is indeed becoming a consumer nation. Um, as you know, the excess current account surplus has quasi-vanished, but China still is a, needs exports to continue to grow. And what we've seen so far is that trade tension have shaken confidence in China. You've seen the stock market collapsing and the government trying to once again stimulate the economy in response not so much with the currency that we were discussing earlier but with the usual traditional their traditional tool of supporting infrastructure investment now that's not really good because they are piling up debt on existing debt and as you know debt is really high in china Laurent Spoon, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With the OECD in Paris out uh, with their important report and report, <clears throat> not gloom and doom, decidedly not, but just looking at um, a weight to the global economy as well. Now let's find out where the U.S. economy is headed with Michael Faroli. Mike Faroli is J.P. Morgan's chief economist. He's been putting together his 2019 Outlook release. But just to give you some more current information, orders to U.S. factories for big-ticket manufactured goods fell by the largest amount in 15 months. Michael Faroli, great to have you with us. What do you attribute this decline to? Well, we did have a big decline um, in uh, in aircraft orders in particular, which can be really volatile month to month. Uh, so we often look at the ex-transportation numbers, which were... Uh, up a tenth, uh, that was obviously a lot better than the headline, but still somewhat disappointing. So when we kind of cut through the details of this report, and there are a lot of, you know, subcategories that we tend to look at, it was it was not disastrous, uh, but it was definitely on the softer side of uh, of expectations. Well, this does raise the issue, Michael, about uh, corporate spending and just spending mm-hmm. by a lot of businesses in general. We were really sort of expecting a bump in CapEx. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. that as we go into 2019, uh, whether we'll see uh, a little bit more CapEx or whether we're going to see a, uh, a pullback. Well, we did get a bump. Uh, we got a bump in the first uh, first half of the year when CapEx um, grew around 10%. Then third quarter uh, softened pretty considerably. Um, almost flat in the third quarter. We do expect it'll do better uh, as we go into 2019, but we're not looking for blowout numbers on CapEx. Um, so we think uh, capital spending may, real capital spending may be up around 4% next year, which is, uh, it's okay, but it definitely is not enough, I don't think, to change the picture when it comes to things like productivity. I think there had been hopes that you get this big investment boom more, you know, more investment, more capital means more productivity. Uh, 
I don't have high hopes for that, actually. Um, and I think today's number is consistent with, uh, you know, just kind of okay capital spending growth, but nothing that's really changes the narrative of what we've seen over the past few years. Michael Faroli, does this mean that you're putting lumps of coal in your Christmas stockings <laughs> for 2019 as you prepare? What is the outlook for 2019? So I think we have to keep in mind that 2018 was um, you know, somewhat exceptional in the degree of policy support we had, right? So you had not only a big tax cut, which uh, everyone knows about, which was signed into law late last year. We also had a big increase in federal spending uh, signed into law earlier this year. And so you were really kind of firing on all gears. Obviously, the Fed was tightening, but not getting tight in an absolute sense. So, you know, this year you were kind of in the sweet spot where the economy was, you know, humming along. There wasn't too much of a, a headwind from the global economy like you had seen in years past. Uh, so we really had all all the stars were kind of aligned uh, this year. And so next year we do think things slow, not because we um, – you know, putting lumps of coal or trying to be particularly downbeat, but I think what we're seeing is sort of a re- reversion to the mean after what had been some unusual but also temporary support. So, uh, but, you know, in, in round numbers this year, we have growth around 3%. Next year, we see it uh, ebbing back down to around 2%, uh, which would be more in line with the trend that had prevailed uh, for much of the expansion uh, up until last year. Uh, this year, I'm sorry. Yeah, Michael, you talk about temporary support. Do you see any prospect of maybe uh, some additional fiscal stimulus, uh, if not even a a second type of uh, tax cut, uh, whether it's uh, for the middle class or for corporations? Yes, I think, uh, you know, tax cut 2.0, as some people have called it, uh, it's going to be a little tough, well, a fair bit tougher, I think, in in, uh, the upcoming Congress, uh, given that. You know, we don't see a whole lot of areas of commonality on on, uh, tax policy between. uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans. There are, as you say, some aspects of uh, middle-class tax cuts which will expire, um, are set to expire in a few years. Uh, perhaps you could get something there, but even if that happens, uh, we don't think it'll really matter much for 2019 because a lot of these provisions expire in uh, like 2023. So um, you'd really have to have very forward-looking behavior for that kind of uh, change in the tax code to really matter for um uh, for the 2019 outlook. Uh, I do think it's, uh, things get a little interesting when it comes to infrastructure. Um, you know, some headlines that uh, the president would like to do a deal with uh, uh, Democrats in Congress to get something done on infrastructure. Um, as I said, it's interesting, uh, but we're not, so far we haven't sort of penciled that into our forecast, uh, in part because so what? Have, uh, so Michael, we only have about thirty seconds. What sure. have you penciled in for bonds for twenty nineteen? So we do think the Fed uh, is going to continue hiking uh, interest rates. Uh, obviously, that um, you know we're kind of on our back feet on that, or given some of the recent uh, uh, Fed commentary and some of the market moves. But we still have them hiking uh, once a quarter, uh, uh, every quarter next year, which would. Uh, um, you know, get 10-year rates up to around 3.5% by, uh, as you get into, like, uh, uh, well into the second half of next year. All right. We've got to leave it there. Thanks very much. Michael Faroli, he is the chief U.S. economist for J.P. Morgan Securities. And uh, AAA, the Federation of Motor Clubs throughout North America, estimates that nearly 55 million Americans 
will journey 50 miles or more away from home this Thanksgiving. That is nearly a 5% increase over last year. Well, when you travel, typically you use a credit card or a debit card or a charge card of some kind. And here to help us understand what is the best way to make that travel affordable is Brian Kelly. He is the points guy. All right, points guy. Have the deals gotten better or worse for travelers? Oh, well, when it comes to credit cards, the, the credit card market is hot. You know, for, for anyone listening who hasn't changed their credit card in years, you're missing out on some of the biggest bonuses we've ever seen. Uh, the Capital One Venture card now has a 75,000-point bonus, uh, and the fee is waived the first year. Uh, they also announced... But you do have partners. to spend five grand within five the grand. first yeah, three months. Not, yeah, f- who, who listening here doesn't spend 5000 within three I'm months? Just, you know? <laughs> I'm just, you know, right? So but the I, total... I you, the disclaimer. <laughs> but, but Brian, maybe just step back a second because yeah. the way you compute the value of the card, it is a combination of the miles that are being offered after a certain spending amount. You yep. get a perks value, then there's the annual fee, and then you get a total value, right? So there are a couple different yep. pieces that go into this. Yeah, and not everyone's going to get the maximum value, but at a very minimum, you know, most credit card points, uh, Amex, Chase, Cap One, they're going to be worth like one cent a piece, give or take, when you redeem for travel. But what, uh, you know, at the points guy, what we obsess over is how to get more value out of that. And mm-hmm. with all of these major credit card points, and that that's by transferring to partners. So, um, you know, you can fly first class Lufthansa by transferring your Amex points to, they have a new transfer partner, Avianca Life Miles, you know, the, the South American airline, which even if you don't want to go to South America, all these airlines have alliances and uh, Avianca is in Star Alliance and you can, it's a arbitrage opportunity to transfer to a partner and then redeem it on their partner. Right. So it gets really so how many mi- So how many yeah. points or miles or whatever you want to call them, how many do you have to transfer to the Avianca frequent flyer 70, program? Yeah, 70,000. And you can fly Lufthansa first class one way, New York to Frankfurt, let's say. That's a $10,000 ticket. Okay. So think about that. 70,000 points would normally get you 700 bucks, but instead you can get 10,000 in value by transferring and redeeming on a partner for first class. Do you have to fly so through extreme, Bogota or anything weird like that? Nope. You never have to step foot on an Avianca plane. That's the beauty of these airline alliances. So w- no matter what miles you have, even if you have American Airlines miles, you got to go to Hong Kong. Don't fly American through LA. Fly Cathay nonstop JFK to Hong Kong. And Get this, not only is it a better airline uh, with better service and food, it's less miles. But the thing is, American won't show Cathay award availability online, so you have to pick up the phone and call. So that's why there's all these little tricks, but once you learn them, and I know people always say, stop sharing the, the secrets when, when we talk about this, because uh, you know most people will go to an airline website and think, oh, shucks, there's no availability. These miles are worthless. When in fact, there's tons of availability, you just have to you know learn how to to sniff it out. Does it does it typically pay to check the domestic or the local carrier of a particular destination and then see which frequent flyer mile program they are part of in order to do this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would think, you know, where are you going, you know, and, and look at the best airline to get there and then look at their partners. Um, so, yeah, you're totally right. And sometimes it makes sense, you know, to just buy tickets on a low-cost carrier, you know, especially if you're going around Asia or Europe, you know, don't waste your miles, um, you know, because, you know, business class in Europe isn't even business class. It's basically coach with the middle seat blocked out. So, so yeah, I mean, my recommendation is to, um, you know, get the most expensive flight or hotel and then 
figure out how to how to use points to get there. All right. Got to ask you about the hotel loyalty programs and the Starwood Hotel yep. loyalty that's program, a, that's, that's a along with Marriott. Spot for a lot of Starwood loyalists. You know, yes. Uh, you know, Charlie from Long Island writes in and says, gee, you give me gold status when I've got 10 room nights and you'll give me platinum status when you when I have 50 room nights. But what if I only have 25 room nights? I've spent a month in your hotel properties and I'm, I've gotten nothing. I've gotten kind of this in-between status. Yeah, you know, Marriott has made it harder. Starwood was a lot easier to get status. Um, Marriott has made it more difficult, um, especially if you book several rooms a night. You, you know, Starwood used to be able to give you elite status for all the nights that you book under your name, but Marriott's much more strict. And, you know, Marriott won't let you do it on stage. You have to do nights. So I think, you know, what Marriott's saying is, look, you've got to stay, you know, really – 50 nights uh, a year for the platinum status, but they're trying to thin the herd out a little bit and, and give more perks to those top tier. I think I'm a lifetime Starwood platinum and I'm still a little skeptical. I think in general, the program, you know, there's still some hiccups and tech issues, but, um, but yeah, there, I think it, that's the same message across all the airlines too. They're making it much harder. You got to spend more to get that top tier elite status. Mm -hmm. But if you really are a top tier flyer and, and spending a lot, then the perks are better and you, you will get more miles. So, um, you know, for those in-betweener travelers, yeah, you are getting squeezed, and especially at the lower level. So that's why it might make sense to not be so loyal to one airline and instead, you know, use Hotels.com, which is going to give you 10% back no matter where you stay, whatever hotel you want. All right. I, before, before we let you go, I, I have to ask you about the Chase Sapphire Preferred. Do you get a free rose every time you travel using that card because i see a lovely picture of you on a last team, minute flight home on a lufthansa my team looks to troll me because i took a funny photo you know lufthansa first class i it's one they of my give favorites. you the rose but they don't give you socks <laughs> actually i think in the amenity kit they, they have socks in a, in a in a pajama but yeah so they took a photo of me once and now my team who you know puts together all of our posts will will love to throw the picture of me and 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 that rose in whatever random post that they can put it into but um but yeah, and here's a tip with Lufthansa. They've got the Evian spray mist in the bathroom. I always like to snag one from the plane before I leave. Really? So that's <laughs> where they end up. Now we know. All right, well, now we know also about the credit cards and how to use these programs. Very interesting to uh, focus on the domestic carriers and then uh, maybe even switch your miles to the domestic carrier in order, in order to get uh, those flights. Much appreciated uh, for joining us. Brian Kelly, he's the points guy, if you didn't know. He's around to help you figure out how to use your credit card and all that spending to get lots of free stuff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.